I know there's more of you out there. Good morning. Larry has been here 22 years, and I think his feet get bigger every year because I feel like Cameron, my son Cameron, when he wears my shoes, Larry's shoes are pretty big to fill. And I cannot do this on my own. And so let's go to the the Lord and pray this morning that he would bless our service together. Father, we humble ourselves before you because... You are the great and mighty king. Lord, who are we that you should love us, that you should call us, that you would save us? Father, may your word as it goes forth, as it is read and expounded, may it reach hearts that are good soil, that that your word would bear fruit, and Father, that we would be transformed and changed more into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm glad that we prayed for teachers and professors uh, this morning. I'm a professor at the seminary. I need lots of prayer. Um, And one of my favorite things to do as a professor, you may not know this, some of you will find this out soon enough if you're my student, uh, is to give quizzes. It's not really my favorite thing to do, but, um, but we do it a lot. Any here, former students of mine, can testify to that? Do I have an amen and an hallelujah over here? <laughs> Any students who have not yet had me but are planning to, uh, be prepared. So I, what I thought we would do this morning is start off with a quiz. Okay? You don't, have, don't get your papers out. Uh, you don't have to write anything down, but you do have to tell me the answer. I thought we would start off by asking the question, who's the greatest? It's something our culture is consumed with, I think, we often ask, especially in relation to various sports. People are always asking, who's the greatest sport figure? So let's start off with a little quiz this morning, see if you know the right answers to these. And some of them don't have a right answer. And I will be grading on a curve, so don't worry. But who is the greatest basketball player of all time? I think most people would say Michael Jordan. How about football? Who's the greatest football player of all time? I think with football, you have to narrow down the category because, you know, baseball, for example, everybody bats. Well, some leagues they don't. Um, You know my point. But let's say wide receiver. Who's the greatest wide receiver of all time? Jerry Rice. Who's the greatest... Baseball player of all time. Most people say Babe Ruth. You know, the guy with two two strikes on him can point to which direction the home, you know, the ball's going to be going over the fence. That's impressive. And didn't he catch a ball from an airplane or something that was dropped? I actually think he did. That alone should count for something. Uh, The greatest soccer player of all time. Pele. Pele. Anybody know who this is here? Ronaldo, thank you. One of you knows. The greatest hockey player of all time? Wayne Gretzky. How about the greatest boxer of all time? There's debate. If you did a poll and you ask each boxer, they would say they are the greatest. Um, 
<clears throat> One last question. The greatest preacher, maybe not of all time, but in the world today. Now, I did some research for this. I searched on the internet and I searched greatest preacher in the world, or something to that effect. The results came up. I was surprised I shouldn't have been, I should have known. I didn't know the rest of the world knew. But it came up as Pastor Larry. To my dismay, it was Pastor Larry Mack. I don't know if he designated himself or somebody else. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. What do they know? Well, as it turns out, this is a question that not only our culture asks, but it's a question that the disciples were asking Jesus. And as they, you know, our theme is drawing near to the good and mighty king. And the disciples one day draw near to Jesus, and they ask a question, not about somebody else, but about themselves. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? So take your Bibles this morning. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. And we'll start off with the first four verses. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why do the disciples ask this question? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Why did they ask that? Well, you know, this, their, their question relates to the kingdom you know, as the Messiah, Jesus ushered in the kingdom. He is the king, and when the king comes, the kingdom is there. Now, we look back now, and we say that Jesus, it was sort of a two-fold stage. Jesus brought the kingdom, but not fully. And when he returns, he will bring the kingdom in its fullness. And so he even said, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come. There's more to come. But the disciples, something happened, and the disciples see Jesus, they're beginning to see Jesus as the king. And so with the king, there's a kingdom, thus their question. Notice it's not who will be in the future, it's who is now. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Which of us is the question, right? Which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Why did they ask that question? Well, notice verse 1, and there's a link to the previous story, because it starts off at that time. Literally, that, it could be translated, at that hour, at that hour. This similar phrase was just used in the previous chapter. If you go back up to chapter 17, verse 18, it says, Jesus rebuked a demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed, literally, from that hour. And so here, this, the similar phrase is used, at that hour. Well, at what hour? What just happened? Well, the previous story is about paying the temple tax. Does Jesus need to pay the temple tax? So Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, do, do you need to pay the temple tax? And Jesus' basic answer is no. No, the sons are free. But so as not to offend the officials, he tells Peter to go catch a fish in the fish, the first fish that he catches, take the coin out and pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. 
Now, not only was this an incredible miracle, uh, I don't do a lot of fishing, but never have I caught a fish with you know, money inside of it. Um, but there is a powerful message behind this. What Jesus is saying is that he's like royalty. He doesn't need to pay the temple tax. The disciples are beginning to see Jesus as the, as the king. And so their thinking is this, is like this. If the kings of the earth give their children favored status, right? Jesus says, you know, the, the kings of their children of the king don't pay tax. Then the children, or in this case, the friends, the disciples of the king in the kingdom will likewise be treated as with a privileged status. Oh, okay, if that's the case, if you're the king, Jesus, and you're bringing in the kingdom, then who's the greatest? In answering this question, Jesus brings a child, and he puts him in the midst of them, and he says that you must turn, you must be converted, you must become like this child, you must humble yourself. Uh, that, bring, that brings the question then, are children really humble? Is that what Jesus is saying? As I thought about this, I thought, you know, people, you know, think if, if you're a parent, you're probably thinking, it's a good thing I wasn't there because if Jesus would have grabbed one of my children, this whole analogy would have broken down. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. I, that's really not the point. I, I like what uh, Bruner says. Uh, I know why Larry keeps quoting Bruner. Uh, who is this Bruner guy? Well, he's a guy who wrote two-volume commentary explaining uh, Matthew. And he puts it this way, he says, It is not so much the child's subjective innocence or purity that is in view. He says, it's more the, the objective smallness and low status. The child, in the opinion of Jesus' culture, had to limit itself to listening and obeying. Another commentator, R.T. France, he said... The instruction to become like children is thus not about adopting some supposed ethical characteristic of children in general, innocence, humility, receptiveness, trustfulness, or the like, but about accepting for oneself a position in the social scale which is like that of children. That is, as the lowest in the hierarchy and decision-making, those subject to and dependent on adults. And then he says in a footnote, yes, you should read the footnotes. He says, one wonders whether some commentators who speak of children as unselfconscious or unconcerned about status and the like have ever been parents. That's not the point. He's saying in the culture, the status of a child was the lowest. Not that children are, are naturally humble. Just about a minute of reflection will tell you that's not the case. See, what Jesus does is he turns the conventional thinking upside down. In, in contemporary Judaism, in the future age of the kingdom, those who were righteous, those who taught the scriptures, those who were rich in good works or even martyrs, they would be the ones who would receive a favored status. But Jesus grabs a child and says, the greatest is the least. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question immediately. Their question, who's the greatest? He first answers a more basic, a more fundamental question. And so, this morning, I want to I give you five points related to entering the kingdom. 
entering the kingdom. And the first one is this. Based on what Jesus says in verse 3, make sure you enter the kingdom. You see, again, Jesus, he says in verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't deal with their question immediately. He answers a more basic, fundamental question. He says, you must turn. Some translations say you must be changed or be converted and become like children. Well, what does that mean? Well, it meant for the disciples that there was no guarantee that they were going to enter the kingdom based on their current status as Jews, as disciples, and as apostles. You see, as, as Jews, they were the chosen people of God. As disciples, they were those chosen by Jesus to learn from him. As apostles, they were those sent out by Jesus to teach others about him. And Jesus gives a powerful warning even to his disciples. You must be changed. You must turn, be converted. And so this becomes a powerful warning for us as well. Notice the emphatic nature here. He first begins his statement with, truly I say to you. This just means this is important. Pay attention. And then he says, if you don't comply, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just that you will not. There's a way to say that. And this is, in Greek, a double negative. You will not, not enter. Now, in Greek, two negatives don't make a positive. They make one big, fat negative. Okay? He says, you will never enter the kingdom. You see, this, this relates to us in a powerful way. As Americans, we're, for those of us who are Americans here, I know that maybe not everybody is. But no matter where we're from, we are not God's chosen people by birth. We must be born again. Jesus even tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. It means as churchgoers that we are not Christians simply because we go to church. And even as North Wakers. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is a good church, right? Nobody attends. Yeah, I'm going to a bad church. Uh, most people don't do that. They, they, you know. But even as North Wakers, there's no guarantee. We must be converted. We must change. We must repent. And so if Jesus warns his own disciples, how much more should we heed the warning here to repent, to turn, recognize our status before God? Jesus eventually does answer the question of the disciples, and really the answer is linked together. You must be, become like children. You must be humble. Verse 4, uh, he says that humility makes one great. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. His answer is that the greatest one is one who is not concerned about being the greatest. I read about a person who was filling out an application for a ministry position. And on that application, it's asked, you know, what is your greatest strength in ministry? And the person proudly wrote, humility. It's like, no, I don't, I'm not sure about that. What does humility look like? Well, I think Matthew gives us a few clues in the, in the text itself. Um, it looks like showing hospitality to others. Look at verse 5, but receiving others. You receive me, Jesus says. It's about seeking those who go astray. We'll look at verses 10 through 14 with the lost sheep. 
It's about forgiving others in verses 21 and 22, which we'll get to next week. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven, Jesus says, no, 77 or 70 times seven times. Jesus states in Matthew 20, 26, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You see the picture here. You must be like a child, low. You must be a servant. In Mark's gospel, he says, you must be last of all and a servant of all. Luke says that he must be least, the one who is least among you. Again, to to quote Bruner, he says, humility is nothing else than knowing how small we really are before God. And he says, but let us admit it. In the modern world, we have largely lost our sense for God. And so with that loss comes a very dim knowledge of any littleness before God. You see, the opposite of being humble is, is, is being proud. And let me just address a few questions to you and just honestly think about these things and ask them to your, of yourself. These are signs of pride. Are you easily offended? Do you insist on getting your own way? Do you hold grudges? Do you refuse or just maybe neglect hospitality? Do you not give others the benefit of the doubt? I think those are signs of pride in our lives. In contrast, humility is, something, is someone who yields to others, serves others, considers others better than himself. And Bruner even says, hey, child care is the best way to be humble. Uh, if you don't believe me, try it. Um, it, will, it will cause you to be humble. Now, let me just say that the Bible does use different analogies in relation to children, because here we're exhorted to be like a child. But in most of the time in the Bible, we're exhorted not to be like a child. There's a difference between childlikeness and childishness. You see, childishness is immaturity. And so Paul says, he warns against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. You're, you're immature. He says in chapter 13, when I was a child, yeah, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put those things away. I put away childish ways. He says in chapter 14, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In your thinking, be mature. Don't be immature. Don't be a child. The author of Hebrews says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. It's immaturity. And oftentimes the Bible warns us, don't be like a child. Don't be immature. But in this case, in other places, we are encouraged. The Bible does exhort us to childlikeness, being like a child, being humble. Paul says, be infants in evil. Don't know about evil. Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. See, in one sense, we should be like a child. That's as, as a child longs for milk, they don't want anything else. We should long for God and his word. So, the first point this morning, make sure you enter the kingdom. Jesus addresses his disciples this way. Number two, make sure you don't hinder others from entering the kingdom. Make sure you don't hinder others from entering the kingdom. Verses five and six. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Notice there that Jesus is transitioning from a physical child to a believer. Someone who, a little one who believes in me. There's a transition. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. What is Jesus saying here? Very simple. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't scandalize another believer. Don't hinder somebody from entering the kingdom. Jesus states instead that you should receive such a person. Encourage them. Exhort them. Love them. Don't cause them to stumble. He says, drowning at sea is preferable than causing others to stumble. Because that may lead to them not entering the kingdom. And interestingly, this is not an ordinary millstone here that you know, a person operated. This was literally, it says, it says in the, the translation, a great millstone. Literally, it's a donkey millstone. This is a millstone that was pulled or drawn by a donkey weighing several tons. The point is, there is no escape. It's better, you know, drowning is certain. Houdini, David, Blaine, they're not getting out of this one. This is absolutely certain. Earlier, Jesus spoke like this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's just the opposite of what the disciples are asking, right? Don't, don't cause others to stumble. Don't hinder others. He goes on to say, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, how is it that we, cause, we can cause someone to stumble a believer to stumble in their faith. I think there are two primarily, primary ways. And, and one is by our unbiblical beliefs, and the other is by our unethical lifestyle. You see, sometimes we have unbiblical beliefs. Of course, we don't want to, nobody thinks they do. It's not like I can think of it in my mind. Yeah, and about 10% of my beliefs are just wrong. You know, I think they're all right, but, um, you know. But let me just say this as a warning. If, if you believe something, if you've seen something in the Bible that no one else in the history of the Christian church has seen or affirmed, chances are that you are 99 and 44, 100% wrong. You're wrong. And, and there's a danger of taking that belief and being so excited about it, you get consumed with it, and all you want to do is, is teach other your idiosyncratic you know, syncretic view. Be careful. You know, I remember one time when I was, uh, after I, I was preaching, and somebody came up to me after the, uh, the service, and he said to me, what is your view of Revelation chapter 11? I was like, whoa, where did that come from? I didn't preach on Revelation chapter 11, nor have I ever. I didn't reference Revelation chapter 11 in a sermon, nor I don't think I ever have. Um, some of you are like, what is Revelation 11? Um, you see, he wasn't there. He wasn't asking me about a question. He was there to convince me of his view. And that could be that could be dangerous when we get so preoccupied on some tangential, you know, minor point in Scripture. Make sure you don't cause others to stumble by what you believe. Know the Scriptures. Know it well. Test it with others and learn and be humble. But also, we can cause people to stumble by our unethical lifestyle. 
Now, let, me, let me just offer you one way. I, 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 I've seen this maybe, maybe in my own life um, that we can, we can do this. It's, it's subtle. But I think as Christians, we find safety in numbers, don't we? And we think if, we don't, if we're not certain about a particular thing that we do or something that we're watching, we find great encouragement when other people do the same thing. We're, we're, we're uncertain about it. We're not doing it in faith, but we find great encouragement. And so we kind of check that off the list. Okay, that's, it must be okay because other Christians do that. And sometimes even more sinister is we, we encourage other Christians to do this just so that we'll feel better. Hey, they're doing it too. That's a dangerous position to be in. Don't base your life on what's accepted in your community. Go back to the scriptures. The Bible says whatever's not done in faith is sin. Now, as parents, we also, you know, we need to be careful that we're not causing our children to stumble. And what a responsibility we have to make sure that when they see us, they don't see us as someone who's angry or jealous or greedy, self-centered. But we need to live before our children in a way that honors God. And Paul tells the Ephesians, he says, be very careful then how you live. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. And so the things that we believe and the way we live, we need to be very careful. Don't hinder others from entering the kingdom. Number three, make sure you don't, or others don't hinder you from entering the kingdom. Make sure others don't hinder you from entering the kingdom. Look at verse 7. It says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Okay, the world, woe. The world's out there. There are temptations to be coming. Jesus says, it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. There are some who will seek to prevent you, to hinder you from entering the kingdom. Jesus says to the, uh, this, to, to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, convert, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. There are those out there who will cause us to stumble, who will seek to hinder us. Now think about your own life. Who might that be? It, it could be a family member. Doesn't, doesn't agree with way, that person doesn't agree with where you're going in your life. And so they're, they're always putting out little things that you'll trip over and stumble on tempting you. It could be someone at work. It could even be someone in church. We need to be careful. We need to be prepared. Notice that Jesus never says that life will be easy. He says temptations will come. Life wasn't easy for him. The question is, when those temptations come, is your faith firm, firmly established on the rock, solid foundation of God's word? Make sure that others don't hinder you from entering the kingdom. Number four, make sure you don't hinder yourself from entering the kingdom. Make sure you don't hinder yourself from entering the kingdom. Verses eight and nine. Jesus states, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Earlier, Jesus used this type of imagery when he speaks about lust and and his warning against lust. Matthew chapter 5, he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This imagery is very powerful because in Judaism, such self-mutilation was abhorred. It was forbidden in the Old Testament. You couldn't enter the temple. And so this is a powerful, stark image of the cost one must be willing to pay to avoid spiritual death. Now... Does Jesus really want you to mutilate yourself? Some, I've seen pictures of someone in India with a missing arm based on this verse. Is that what Jesus is saying? And I think the answer for that, I think you would agree with me, is no. That's not the point. How can you say that? Well, I think here Jesus is using exaggeration. You might be saying, okay, the preacher's lost it. He's now saying Jesus is exaggerating. Isn't it wrong to exaggerate? Well, sometimes it is. It's sometimes wrong to exaggerate, especially if you're not expecting it. See, it all has to do with expectations. If the, if the person listening is expecting in a particular context, it's okay. But if your doctor is reading your, lab, your blood report, you know, and he's like, yeah, your cholesterol level's uh, 320. I mean, you're sweating bullets. You're like, whoa, I can feel something, you know. Uh, And then he's like, ah, just kidding, I was exaggerating, it's 160. No, that's not not right. Your doctor is not not allowed to exaggerate, something like that. You see, it it depends on the context. If if the audience knows exaggeration is being used, then it's okay. Particular context, and exaggeration is used in the Bible, especially with ethical teachings. You see, what it does is it shows how serious doesn't minimize it. Well, Jesus is exaggerating. He's not really meaning anything. No, what he's saying is, this is so serious. If doing this would help, it would be worth it. Another way we know this is exaggerated language is that, you know, does chopping off a hand or plucking out an eye really solve the problem? You know, uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, how do you know which eye is leading you astray? In the first place, it's not like, you ever seen like a lizard? We're not like that. It's not like lizards have, they're like, looking over here, and this eye's like, you know, they're doing different things. We can't do that. I don't know which eye it is. As in, 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 in Jesus, earlier he said in Matthew chapter 5, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, as if they can talk to each other. Hey, you know. The point is, it, it should be so secret that if it were possible, your left hand wouldn't know what your right hand is doing. Of course, that's not possible, but that's how serious you should take the secrecy of giving. I didn't see anybody doing this when they were, uh, you know, the offertory plate was passed. What Jesus is saying is that if it could help, it really won't, but if it could, it would be better. One author said, no sacrifice, here's Jesus' point, no sacrifice is too costly in the war against sin. No sacrifice is too costly. 
You see, this illustration serves to highlight how seriously we should take our fight against sin. I'm not, I'm not sure that we, we're, we're very good as Christians today at fighting against sin. Because I think we have this inherent belief that if something is spiritual, it should be easy. Right? Hey, if, you know, if God grants it, I'll do it. I've been praying about it, but nothing's happening That's not the way I read my Bible because there are all kinds of texts that encourage me to fight for my life against sin. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation. Now, if that wasn't enough, he adds, with fear and trembling. Now, he's talking to believers. He goes on to say, it's God who works in you. Your salvation is a gift. You can't earn it but you better work it out with fear and trembling. God does it. You better do it. He's paid for it. Press on. Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. I think we've lost that art of discipline for godliness. We think, ah, it's not, it's not coming. I'm still waiting on the Lord. Paul applied this to his own life. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Dis- I discipline my body. And keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Wow. And then at the end of his life, he tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Characterize the Christian life as a fight. We have to fight against sin. We don't want to let sin hinder us in any way. It could be the TV, internet, fame, status, relationship, whatever in your own life. I like what the Puritan John Owen said. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Don't be complacent. Go after it in your own life. Make sure you don't hinder yourself from entering the kingdom. And then number five, finally. Make sure you help others enter the kingdom. Make sure you help others enter the kingdom. 10 through 14. Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. I think, again, these are believers, little ones who believe in me. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Just pause. I don't know if if you've caught that. Believers have their angels. This is a text, just as an aside, where some people believe in this idea that every believer has has a guardian angel. Now, it does say in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are sent forth to serve those who will inherit eternal life. So angels do serve believers. It seems to be going a little too far to say that each believer has a particular designated guardian angel. But Jesus is saying, be careful, don't despise another believer. They have a relation to the Father through these angels. Be careful. He goes on to say in verse 12, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father. Here's the point, right? It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Again, the sheep going astray are those 
who are part of the fold. They are believers who have wandered. And Jesus says, it's not the will of my Father that one of them should perish. You see, it's not enough simply to not cause others to stumble. It's not enough that we actively seek to prevent others from stumbling. But we must go after them if they do stumble. Help them by bringing them back. Isn't this what James, exactly what James is saying in James 5.20? He says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, a wandering sheep, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Paul similarly writes, uh, if anyone, this is Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore, bring him back. If somebody's wandered, bring him back in a spirit of of gentleness. The point is this, God's perspective should be our perspective. If God does not will one of these to wander, we should be concerned and help bring them back. The parallel passage in Luke says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joy in heaven when someone is brought back, when a sinner repents. So, listen to God's word. Listen to the words of Jesus, to the, to the, to the warning of Jesus. And the first thing he says, perhaps the most important this morning, make sure you enter the kingdom. Make sure you enter the kingdom. You see, he says we enter the kingdom by humbling ourselves, placing our faith in Christ. You see, because of our sin, God must punish us. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has made an acceptable sacrifice. He has paid what we could not. He has endured the wrath of God for us. And he says this morning, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must repent. You must turn. You must humble yourself before God. Trust in him for eternal life. He also says, that we must guard against anything that would prevent us, that would hinder us from entering the kingdom. Of course, not being a hindrance ourselves, not causing others to stumble. As Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. And not letting others hinder us, whether it's family or friends, and even others in the church. And make sure that we don't hinder ourselves, but we're fighting against sin, and when possible, helping others who have gone astray. And perhaps there are some here who, who have gone astray. People in church don't have it all together. None of us do. And we need to remind ourselves that we have a good shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. He is the one who seeks after us. I, I like that song that we sung, relentless, that relentlessly pursuing us. The author of Hebrews says that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And Peter says that he is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. He says he is the chief shepherd who will appear and give us the unfading crown of glory when his kingdom comes in all its fullness and we enter into his perfect kingdom with him.
Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you, we confess to you, Lord, that we are a proud people, that we want things our way. And Father, we, we humble ourselves before you this morning, Lord, and we confess that we need your grace every minute of our lives. Even as Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And Lord, I pray that if there are some here who have never tasted the goodness of God, who have not entered the kingdom, who have not placed their faith in Christ, oh, Father, I pray that you would open their hearts, that they might confess you as Lord and Savior, that they would turn from their sins and rely not on what they've done, but on you, what you have already accomplished in your Son. Oh, Lord, may this be a great day. May this be a day of salvation for some even sitting here. And, oh, Lord, help us in our pilgrimage in this world. By your strength, by your grace, to fight. To fight against sin, to fight against pride to fight against elevating ourselves, and that, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, even as Jesus humbled himself, becoming a man, becoming a servant, and dying on the cross, to be exalted by you and seated at your right hand where he now reigns and one day will return and restore his full kingdom in its full glory. And, O oh Lord, Give us the strength to press on, to persevere, that we for, for 10,000 years and more will sing your praises. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.